pretty good. I was pretty like, it's like boring. He's just like locked down doing like Citizen Kane deep space in 1930 or whatever. And then this guy's like, you know, just doing doctor shit. Yeah, when he first arrives in the West Indies, all the white people that are like running the scene there are all like anti-vax and they like are extremely <laughs> resistant to him providing this vaccine that he wants to use in, as an experiment. And I guess it is a little ethically dubious because he wants a control group of people who don't get the vaccine uh, and he just would treat traditionally for the plague. But then once the vaccine starts proving itself quite useful of course these rich white assholes all line up and they just like you know present their arms to dr aerosmith and are just like oh sorry for the hassle you know but jab me now yeah (laughs) dr aerosmith dr aerosmith yeah is it spelled the way aerosmith the band is spelled no (laughs) it smelled like an arrow and then smith like Uh, arrows and like a bow and arrow yeah yeah not Arrow is in plain. the sky. No, no. Arrow. We just watched a movie with Aerosmith's daughter, though, Liv Tyler, uh, Dr. <laughs> T and the woman. Aerosmith's daughter. Oh, <laughs> hell yeah. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. It's hot out there. Let's we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello and welcome to The Gauntlet, a new weekly double feature podcast. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh. I'm Ryan Saunders. I'm Andrew Stasiulis. And we are coming to you from Chicago, Illinois. And of course, before we begin here, I suppose we should talk about how this show is going to work, because this is our very special first episode. So for all you listeners out there, here's uh, here's what we're going to do on uh, on this show. Uh, each week, one of us will throw down the gauntlet, as it were, by selecting uh, or picking a topic or theme for that upcoming week, and the other two hosts will program uh, movies in reaction to that. And then together, in front of microphones, we'll hash it out. We will, you know, run the gauntlet, right? Yes. <laughs> And hopefully survive. Yeah, hopefully we'll see what movies will survive, if we will survive. I think uh, there's a lot of questions that I have uh, specifically. So uh, we might as well just uh, just get it going here. So, you know, this is our this is our first episode. So I wanted to come out with a bang, and I wanted to come out with uh, something personal. So why not do some Chicago cinema. Now, obviously, there's a, I wouldn't say a rich history of Chicago cinema, but a a decent amount. There's some classics, uh, and I'm sure we'll get into that. So that was what I gave the boys for our very first episode. So uh, why don't we uh, turn it over? Andy, what did you pick? Well, you know, uh, like you said, we've had a lot of conversations about, you know, like, I don't know, cities, our city, as Chicago people often watching movies that are set in Chicago and we often then just sit around and, and bitch and complain about how they got our city wrong and they did our town dirty and stuff like that. So, you know, for me, when I think of great Chicago movies and great usages of our city and the locations in Chicago, I often go to, I think, one of the greatest uh, Chicago directors. That's 
Andrew Davis. And so for me, uh, I chose one of my favorite Andrew Davis movies set here in Chicago, the 1988 film Above the Law. Now, for those who haven't seen Above the Law, uh, this is the film that launched Steven Seagal's career. It was the first movie he starred in. It's uh, a very interesting movie. Steven Seagal plays a Chicago police detective named Nico Toscani, and uh, he discovers or uncovers a CIA plot to exchange C4, like military-grade explosives for cocaine, drugs, that sort of thing. And in the course of trying to bring those who've gone above the law to justice, Steven Seagal goes himself completely above the law. I mean, it's it's pretty nuts. He kind of just runs amok, really. Absolutely. Um, so it's, it's somewhat ironic if you think about it. But yeah, I mean, it's just your basic like action movie, you know? Cops running around the city and Steven Seagal breaking a lot of limbs, breaking a lot of windows, shooting people, driving around, and uh, just- Yeah, the city gets torn apart in it. Oh God, yeah, he runs amok. I mean, through the course of his his attempt to bring these people like to, to, <laughs> to justice, he like illegally wiretaps somebody, he, you know, uh, is just sort of busting up like this bar in the, there's a great scene where he just like goes into a bar and just beats a bunch of people up. I mean, he's, you know, uh, at one point he, he takes a FBI agent and holds him at gunpoint, makes him jump into the lake. And then there's just this other scene where there's like these gunmen and there's like a little like, um, intersection or something and these gunmen try to jump him and then he they jump out of a bread truck yeah and then he he, he gets them all at gunpoint and they're all they all got their hands up and then one guy's like well you what are you gonna do you can't take us all and he just shoots the guy like right in the middle of the street which from my perspective is you know very inappropriate behavior for a for a police <laughs> officer but but yeah you know like I, I love this movie I mean I, I think that it's really easy now it's really popular to sort of hate on Steven Seagal to to for, for a lot of obvious reasons you know, he's kind of a despicable person. But I think in there, people also forget that, you know, there are some action movies he made. And for a while, I mean, this guy really was one of the biggest action stars on the planet. And I think, honestly, this might be his best film uh, because it's most pure. I mean, he didn't start to get carried away with who he is. I mean, he's an ego egomaniac that much. I think everybody should know by this point. But there's a somewhat kind of dogged charm here I think because he doesn't really believe in his own star yet you know I mean he he's clearly got a lot of confidence and I think he carries himself really well I think beyond that the real star of this film is the city of Chicago I mean this movie to me for anybody that spent any time in Chicago certainly for people who live in Chicago like when you watch this you're just constantly you know pointing out places landmarks things you've seen and not in that like touristy sense, because you and I have talked a lot about this, Marsh, like one of Andrew Davis's other movies, like The Fugitive. And, and my take, and I think you've always shared this with me, is that The Fugitive showcases Chicago uh, in the way that like a tourist sees Chicago, right? Absolutely. There's a lot of like things there that are just these sort of like, oh, if you go to Chicago, you got to see this, you know, like, oh, the St. Paddy's Day parade, you know, like, oh, downtown. But this movie is like more or less taking place in like the neighborhoods of Chicago. Wicker Park primarily is is prominently featured in this. So yeah, for me, you know, when I think of Chicago, like this is like the first movie that really popped into my head as a showcase for 
the city and a rip roaring good time. I mean, it's a it's, for me a very fun movie. So <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a VHS classic in my youth uh, as well. So I do I have a lot of fondness for it going way back. But we'll, you know we'll get into that. Uh, Ryan, what did you pick? So I took a little bit of a different route in looking for my film. Because, as we've discussed, there are certain canonical Chicago titles, and naturally, just being a Chicagoan, I have seen many of them, and I'm always looking for something a little weirder or seeing if I can find something from our city that I haven't seen before. So I came across this film, The Hunter, from 1980, which is Steve McQueen's last film and also the last film, last commercial feature of director Buzz Kulik, a TV guy and He ended up just doing a few more made-for-TV films after The Hunter. And The Hunter, what I initially thought would be a heavily Chicago film, I came to discover was not, but (laughs) does does some very interesting things with the state of Illinois for the sake of saving money, shipping the crew around the country. So The Hunter itself is a film about... A bounty hunter, a real-life bounty hunter named Ralph Papa Thorson, who reportedly has captured over 5,000 people in the United States, and he operated primarily out of Hollywood, and it seems like a lot of people in Hollywood were familiar with this guy and sort of knew what he was up to. So Steve McQueen plays this bounty hunter as he's operating out of L.A., but has a couple gigs around the country, first in Texas, then in Nebraska, and then in Chicago. A curious thing about the film is that all the sequences set in Texas and Nebraska are just shot in Illinois, in the suburbs of Chicago. And that was what I had first encountered when I had pulled up the film on IMDb and looked at all the locations in the film. I see Kankakee, Illinois, I see Joliet, I see Bonfield, I see Hersher, Illinois, and Lamont, and then Chicago, and I think, I've been to Lamont. Yeah, me too. And I was like, oh great, I know all these places, this'll work. Uh, But it turns out only the last like 20 minutes or so are in Chicago, but it is a hell of a set piece. Uh, But most of the film is like primarily set elsewhere, and it's not really engaging with the identity of the city. But at the same time, it's, It's a very curious film, and I think it proved a really interesting pairing with Above the Law in the sense that Above the Law is the beginning of someone's career, right? Seagal, and it even has like a built-in origin myth in the first like 10 to 15 minutes as it follows him from his like martial arts training. It gives him like a family history, and then it like even has an interlude in Vietnam. And this is all like in the beginning of the film before they even get into the meat of it. And that, that, yeah, that prologue is basically like the bio that he, you know, would put out in press releases, much of which has been debunked by this point in his career. But it's like what he wanted the world to know about him. Like, that's, I think, what I really, you know, think is quite interesting, again, for people now going back and and watching Above the Laws. It's not only this, like, introduction of a star in a movie, but it's like, it's an introduction to this person, right? Like, the persona of Steven Seagal that he was trying to... To, to put out there to the world. I mean, you know? he even gets a story and producer credit on the film with Andy Davis. So yeah, it's a very self-conscious uh, injecting himself into the into the film world. But then, so then at the same time, the hunter, right, is dealing with myth in a very different way. You have a real-life bounty hunter that the film is based off 
and a, a bounty hunter who has an appearance in the film. He's, he is himself in the film as the bartender that Steve McQueen goes to visit later on. And then at the same time, right, there's Steve McQueen, who has his own myth in American cinema, and so he's, like, engaging with that. Right, it's, like, part of the film, I think, is, yeah, just sort of him, yeah, kind of parodying his stardom, I think, in an interesting way. Like, the film itself is just, like, exhausted, you know? like I mean, he's panting for breath throughout much of the film. Yeah. I think the funniest thing, the, the funniest thing for me, you know, again, if you want to even like compare these two Steves, right, um, is, the you know, that Steves. I didn't even realize that. <laughs> it's it's, quite it's obvious, all I've been thinking about the yeah, whole day. Sure. I've just been like, <laughs> since you like came up with the parallel of, the, you know, I was like, and they're both named Steve, you know, <laughs> right, yeah. like it was a fucking like brilliant idea I had. But but to compare like the two, right, like I, I feel like Steve. Steve, Steve McQueen, he's very self-conscious, right? Like you're saying, there's like, he's sort of parodying his persona, his this persona that he had crafted and built. And, right. The and guy a very legitimate one. He's like, like responsible for some of the most like famous car chases in all of film. And here he is, he like can't drive. He, he can't, can't parallel park fucking park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, that's a very conscious choice, you know, mm. and like wink, wink, ha ha. Whereas like on the flip side, you know, with Steven Seagal, like, that man is known for for being like ultra fucking serious. And it's like, it's just such a, a complete polar opposite, right? Because like you're saying, in The Hunter, it's it's whether consciously or not, you know, it's like Steve McQueen reflecting back. Like he's not the same man he was. He he can't just chase everybody down and he has to rely more on his his wits and his smarts to sort of get him through things. Whereas you know, above the law is this completely tailored myth building, right? Of of Steven Seagal, not as a, a sort of self conscious star, but as like a totally sort of I don't know, like you know, uh, he created his own legend before he'd even hit the screen. Yeah, I mean, because that was the thing. Like just thinking about both of the films was the energy level level is so radically different, right? Because yeah, you're right. You know, the McQueen film, it's. It's like kind of almost disarmingly lighthearted, you know, it's like making all these gags, it's pretty loose, um, but then that's not the case with Above the Law, right? It's like trying to like, it's persistent in showing you like how high energy and intense that this guy is. I really want to, yeah, sort of connect these two by saying like one of the sort of like broader things I guess I noticed is it almost does feel in, you know, just looking at these two films. One is very much like the end of an era, right? McQueen, uh, you know, Buzz Kulik, who did like Twilight Zone. He was like a golden age of TV guy from the 50s. And it, you know, it does feel like television-like at times, right? The film, uh, which was also written by Levinson and Link, creators of Columbo, wrote uh, the original script for The Hunter. There were multiple times during The Hunter that my partner, for everyone uh, who doesn't know, Molly, kept mentioning that she felt like she was watching a Columbo episode, primarily based off the decor, but also just the attitude, like certain rooms, like especially when they visit that cop or that's like the guy who kills himself in the film that has like the shading dealies yeah, where he's yeah. like selling all the drugs into the market. But yeah, just with the shag carpets and, and everything, the set design, but then the aura and the mood. So that makes sense. There's a guy on Twitter, Levi Stahl, who uh, tweets uh, very often about his theory, which is that every 70s movie is about the material shittiness of the 70s. And The Hunter is definitely like one for that canon. Obviously, yeah, it came out in 1980, but the whole movie is like, like earth earth tones 
and sort of like yellows. There's a lot of like colorful costumes, but like in general, the houses are just kind of like gross. Everything feels yeah. very 70s and disgusting and like, yeah, just just got that like really drab vibe to the whole movie. So that makes sense. That yeah, Columbo it's got were that. And then it got a rewrite uh, by Peter Hyams. Uh, and I think you can tell what Hyams wrote, you know, like probably the L chase or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the more sort of high octane stuff. And then you look at right Andrew Davis and Seagal and it is a it's a more muscular kind of action movie. It's full of, you know, Andrew Davis dollies and compound moves and all this stuff's going on. It's fast paced. Right. And also you get like, you know, I know, I know McQueen was a practitioner of the martial arts, but like obviously the Hollywood action film transformed around this time, especially gearing more towards martial arts. Right. With guys like. You know, in the wake of Lee, you're in the 80s. You've got, like, Norris, Seagal, like, you know, different, like, whatever. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. becomes, you know, do- dominant later, And that, And right? that's specifically, like, something that Steven Seagal was, like, really adamant about. You know, he had spent time, depending on, like, which of his various origin stories you believe, like, one that is sort of commonly kind of accepted is, like, he had spent time in L.A., like, trying to become this movie star, to try to get into movies, to try to, like, sort of build his vehicle. And that was, like, specifically something that he wanted to do, was, like, showcase Aikido, showcase his his particular form of martial art, but to also, like, showcase the violence of it. You know, so the thing that's always stuck in my mind about Seagal compared to so many other martial artists, like when I think Steven Seagal, I think of arms getting snapped. I think of legs getting broken by a man just twisting some guy's limb to the to to a, a point it shouldn't bend. And like that kind of, I think, raw explosive violence is something, you know, that even goes beyond like Bruce Lee, you know, Bruce Lee one of the great martial artists like who brought martial artists like martial artistry to the screens and you know made it this like uh, unbelievable part of action films but like Seagal I mean he wanted to make this shit nasty and violent and and like in this movie in particular like you feel so much of that violence like there's that alley fight where you know he oh, just gets like jumped by a couple guys. That's my like, favorite. Cuts a guy's arm off, like yeah. beats a couple to, uh, to death with like a baseball bat, and then like it's just. And then he chases the guy by Hollywood cleaners, uh, which is my favorite shot of the film. Right, the dolly down Milwaukee Avenue. I love that. A couple other, I guess, just you know, connection. We're gonna get into them a little more here, but I do want to point out both of these films have people falling to their deaths off parking garages into the Chicago River. Yeah. So that's pretty pretty impressive. Um, and I also, you know, they both have L uh, chase scenes, of mm-hmm. course. And I was thinking of the legacy of the sort of L chase scene. I mean, that happens in another Andy Davis film, Code of Silence, where Chuck Norris jumps off of the L into yeah. the Chicago River. All three of these, The Hunter, Above the Law, and Code of Silence all have like L surfing scenes where the yeah. star is on top of the L, like in the loop, Chicago River. And I appreciate that. And even for the film, you know, The Hunter, not the most exciting film, but that's like a pretty thrilling sequence and we'll we'll get into that. But yeah. we should, let's talk, we're going to talk first here in more detail. We're going to put 
above the law under the microscope. But I do want to point out, right, the myth, Andy, confirm this, you're our Seagal expert. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but isn't the story that it's like Michael Ovitz when he was at Warner Brothers, like he was a, he was a student of Seagal's, and so almost in a sort of like braggadocio, like I can turn anyone into a star. I'll turn my Aikido instructor into a yeah, star. Yeah, I can turn this bum Aikido instructor. Watch this. You know, hold, hold my beard. You know? yeah. yeah. So uh, I do think, yeah, that's sort of a funny, funny origin story. But I also, you know, when looking at the credits for Above the Law, I was laughing because there's like, you know, Seagal and Davis credited on the story, but there's two other screenwriters uh, credited. One is just like a Navy guy. It's just like a military guy. And the other is uh, Ronald Shusett, who co-wrote Alien with Dan O'Bannon. Oh, <laughs> and I was like, what is this movie? You know, maybe that's why there's too many plots uh, in this film or something. Because, uh, you know, there's five writers, five, at least five plots going on. Yeah. And, and to be honest with you, like, I, I think, and I've seen this movie a lot, and there are still plot points that uh, just kind of dangle there for me where I'm like wait is that connected to this you know like it is like an overwritten it's overstuffed it's crazy <laughs> yeah. yeah which is funny because like when you watch it like that's the thing you know you, you you remember like the hardcore action sequences you remember the great chase scenes you know the the shootouts and the fights and then you're like and and what but what's the What's it all about? Like, what's it for? It's like, well, I think it was something about the CIA and some explosives. But then there was this immigration thing with a priest. And, you yeah, know, like... there's a lot of really key plot points that are sort of tossed off inelegantly, like in very small discussions um, that the film draws very little attention to. But then you realize they're the keys to unlocking most of every action scene that happens in the film, just like like what on earth is actually going on. But, you know, too, like and and, you know, you're talking about that whole prologue and that myth you know, building of Seagal, but Seagal deservedly takes a lot of flack for, you know, <laughs> a lot of questionable aspects of his character, right? But I think also, you know, if I, and I hate being a guy that's going to sound like he's just going to start like defending Steven Seagal. Like, I, I don't, I'm not trying to defend the guy, but I will say this, like, Seagal's had a lot of input on the movies that he makes, you know, like parts of his character, parts of the plot, you know, things that he wants stuffed in there. He more or less has been like a producer on like the majority of his movies. And like I would give the guy a little bit of credit for for sort of like a lot of little things that he kind of was ahead of the game on. You know, like this movie, there's a lot of political subtext in there about CIA and particularly CIA in the 80s with Iran-Contra, Nicaragua, Coke for guns, that kind of stuff that that this movie... Dude, he calls out the banks in this movie. Dude, yeah. He's like, banks or CIA. Yeah, the CIA is run <laughs> by the banks, you know? Like, yeah. Imagine if people found out about this shit, you know? Like, that whole Vietnam sequence, right? Like, yeah. he says, like, you know, I, I, I learned the truth later and it's like, yeah, Vietnam was a lie. There's also Andrew Davis because Andrew Davis had all of his connections with Haskell Wexler. Like right. he worked on Medium Cool, a guy that's very critical of the war, very critical of the government. So there's a lot of stuff in here that I think is like pretty bold, you know, for 88 when a lot of other action stars were waving the flag, like unquestionably. And this movie, it's kind of got a more cynical take about that. You know, it's like, fuck the government. Yeah, there's still some, like, Democratic senator that's going to save everybody at the end. But, like, <laughs> but still, you know, there's, there's like, it's dirty, you know? Like, and Henry Silva as the, 
Oh, the just CIA villain. So evil. Just constantly scowling. I love Henry So. I think he's got to be one of the most underrated, like, villainous actors. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. he's just every scene, he's so, he's just so scuzzy and terrifying, and he delivers it so well. I like, too, he's like, uh, he's like dressed like a plantation owner yeah. throughout the movie, right? It's like, and they, and they reveal that in the end. It's like, yeah, he's got a uh, four thousand uh, acres in Costa Rica or oh, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so it's like yeah. really nice place. You know, like, <laughs> it's too bad because I really feel like he, him, and both Pam Greer are like the standout performers, and I feel like they're really underutilized. Like I wish there were more scenes with both of them. There's just, just too many least, characters. There Dude. are exactly. I mean, that's part of it being it's, overstuffed. But I wish they recognized that that you know they were. You know. Well, dude, it's weird. Like, it's 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 a surprisingly like looking back on it, like it's a surprisingly like deep cast. And you know, again, also with Andrew Davis, like he he would cast a lot of people who were relatively nobodies or you know real people. Uh, and there's also like Sharon Stone in one of her earliest roles is like this throwaway his wife. Yeah. But specifically, when you're talking about Pam Greer, it's really funny because I feel like when I watch this movie. It's like there is this like sexual tension between Pam Greer's character, Jax, Steven Seagal's partner. And like there's this will they won't they throughout the movie, which is really bizarre. He seems more concerned about Pam Greer throughout the movie than like his wife and his baby. 100%. You know, and, and then not there's even her, like her promotion. Yeah. Right? He's like, he's like every scene with them is he's just like your career. They, it's so important. Yeah, they have so many like tender moments. They even though they're like, you know, casing this joint and trying to like survey all these bad guys, they go to like a nightclub together and it's like they're on a date. And then the really weird, a really weird like note on that is like later Pam Greer gets into some trouble or whatever, you know, and he's really concerned about her. And he's having this moment where he's like reflecting on her and and he goes to his like house and he looks at this picture. And it's like a family portrait, and it's him, his wife, Sharon Stone, their baby, and Pam Greer's in the picture with them. <laughs> but like taking up like a prominent amount of space in the photo. And I'm just like, what is <laughs> what is going on? Like, Yeah, I mean, I do want to see, I just want to see the Jax show, you know, when she becomes like a DA or whatever, and yeah. is just wearing all pink uh, to, the, to the courtroom. Oh, yeah. But she like, she, again, like, there's so many performers in this, I think, that are just so like kind of effortless in this movie. And I, I, again, it's like, it's just a dumb action movie. I get it and stuff, but like, it's to me like a very like above, no pun intended here, above average action film. And, and I think a lot of that is a testament to Andrew Davis. Like that guy knows how to direct people. I think this is one of Steven Seagal's like best performances to be oh, yeah. honest with you. Um, and it's, and it's limiting, but it's still, it's still, I find it engaging. Yeah. You know? For what he is, you know, they're just playing a, a, a fucking cop, you know, just some guy, but it's good. And another thing, you know, speaking of Andrew Davis and his like casting that like I love is to me, it isn't an Andrew Davis movie and it isn't a Chicago movie unless you've got those two guys, those two cops that always play cops in his movies. Yeah. Ron yeah. Dean. And, and this other guy, Joseph Kosala is his name. And Joseph Kosala was a Chicago police officer. That's right. He's like a Farina type, you know. Absolutely. But yeah. he is... And, and I've always, you know, we talk about it all the time. Farina, Dennis Farina is like <laughs> Chicago, right? Like he's he's a Chicago cop. You you can take him out of Chicago, but you can't take Chicago out of Dennis Farina. Never. But this guy, Joseph Casala, like is to me, like if you had a de- dictionary and you looked up Chicago cop, 
like that guy comes up. He looks like a Muppet version of a Chicago cop, like a caricature of a Chicago yeah, cop. Yeah, the big walrus mustache. Oh, the accent, you know. Man. Nico, keep this channel clear. There's like, also there's also Ralph Foodie, um, yes. who plays a cop in Code of Silence, the other Andy Davis movie, but then he's like a federal clerk in this. Oh my God. He's yeah. the guy the more, guy from Home Alone. The guy from Home Alone that's yeah. in the gangster movie. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I was looking it up too. It was, uh, you know, I had the dumbest moment watching uh, this movie where I was like, this FBI agent looks really familiar. And I looked him up and he's in every Andrew Davis movie. Yeah. There and you I'm go. like, oh, of course. Like, Did you spot Michael Rooker? Yeah, at the bar. At the bar, the yeah. Supposedly, John C. Riley is somewhere in there too. Supposedly, That's, I couldn't find. Oh, right, because he was here then, right? Yeah, yeah, I had read that as well, but I was like looking for him and I didn't spot him. But I mean, he yeah. could very well be in it. I mean, to speak a little bit about his casting too, I feel like one of the other things that he's really good at, like not even just the people with speaking roles, the thing that really charmed me about Above the Law were all of the faces that were filling out the frame. All the time he cuts away during fights to people looking out from their windows or just people who are shop owners. Just everyone who populates the Chicago of Andrew Davis films are Chicagoans. Absolutely. They all feel like they belong there. They all feel like they're a part of the environment. And it crea- it just gives the film like a wonderful texture. Yeah, they're, they're, you know, these like, just like you said, Chicago faces. Everybody's mm-hmm. kind of ruddy and, and stocky yeah, people that don't typically like they, typically they look bored be on screen yeah yeah, yeah. you know they they give no fucks about how they look or what they're wearing right you know they're just hanging out there yeah. is and there's a scene in there you know for for chicagoans like there's this backyard barbecue i wanted whatever. to talk about yeah this. oh good yeah we should talk about the barbecue that was something i also was just like oh this is it right here at the chicago backyard barbecue but like, i gotta say though it's okay so like for those listening, uh, yeah, there's a scene at the beginning, like the, the film opens with, you know, an introduction to Seagal and then a flashback to his time in uh, Vietnam and Cambodia. And then it's like a baptism and boom, we're at a Chicago barbecue. And it sets up this Michael Mann scenario where it's like half the party is cops and half the party is outfit guys, right? Wise guys. And, and they're all just like eyeing each other, being like, those fucking guys or whatever. And then. Get, the mob just like doesn't have anything to do with this movie at all, and they like yeah. never oh, come back. But, they're, they're, but they, I mean, they do. They, they're like they're they're pseudo protectors at some point, and that is right. like a big thing in a lot of Seagal movies. To be honest with you, was like that there was like good mafia, right? There were like there were good. They were the good. You know, they kept the you know the the neighborhood safe. You know, they didn't get into the drugs and all that stuff. You know, they were wise guys. They had honor. You know, yeah. and like that's <laughs> it, that's in this because like when there's problems, like there's like this whole thing where like some of the cops and the mobsters are like protecting the family. Like his like uncle, who's this mob guy or whatever, like is like they're watching the family. They're protecting the family. But oh, right. that's actually yeah. in like a lot of Seagal movies. Like, is, Who's above the law, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, another thing that fascinates me about Seagal that I, I love, and is, it's funny, but it's also a thing that I, I just, I love like tracking, is Seagal as a persona, like as a star, he's got probably one of the most amorphous identities like of a star persona, where he just kind of like claims identity for a little while. And then that's like in all of his movies. And his first couple movies, it was like Italian. So he always played it like an Italian yeah. cop, you know, and this he's Nico Toscani. And then there's Out for Justice, where his name is I shit you not. 
Gino Felino. Uh, which is not like a joke. Trying. I do, right? Gino Felino. I just crack off at that shit. He's stealing Italian valor. Oh my God. Yeah. But that's like his thing. For he, sure. He, he, t- you know, for years he told people, and this is in this movie, like the whole CIA thing, like one of Seagal's like legendary bullshit stories was that like he trained CIA operatives in like martial arts and shit like that. And Aikido, like he has all these claims that he's made throughout his career about you know, things he's done. And, and he sort of intimated even that he may have gone on some sort of like ops and missions and stuff like that. But it's like, again, all been debunked, you know? And he just kind of claims this skin for a while. And then it's like, it's in all of his movies, you know? And this is, you know, of course, his, his still Italian face. Yeah, he's got a little like slicked back, kind of like dangly, mul- almost mullet. I mean, there's a lot of mullets in this movie in general, but his is, yeah, just like the way his hair hangs off the back of his head in this movie is kind of dazzling. I was like looking at it a lot. (laughs) I mean, yeah, there's a lot of funny, very 80s Chicago kind of looks in that. There's another character that I love, this like side character. He's he's in the credits. He's listed. And this goes to the point of this movie being very confusing to follow. In the credit, he in the credits, he's listed as CIA bartender. Oh, yeah. And it's Ronnie Barron, right? Who looks basically just like like a really hungover Wayne Newton. And, yeah, and he's <laughs> another like Muppet looking guy yeah, in this dude. movie. He looks so funny. And like, you know, like he's he's uh I guess he's a pretty in certain circles, he was like sort of a well-known musician. He's like I think a New Orleans guy or whatever, but he was just a dude again that I guess Andrew Davis met and really liked. So because well, he's in Stony Island, his first film, which is about musicians, so that guy's like playing in that movie, so they had that connection. But that yeah, his face and also the really like what is a CIA bartender? Right, that's uh, what I mean. That's fucked up because that guy's running like <laughs> he's, running. Uh, he's running a bar that's like it's actually, you know, again, another sort of like Chicago vibe is like he he comes into this sort of convenience store and there's a bar like a full bar in back. It's like one of those Chicago <laughs> like package package goods stores. Exactly. You, know? you could buy a six pack, drink it right at the bar, just walk the fuck out with it. Yeah. Right? And they got a CIA bartender. CIA bar. Because that's the thing, like. He's just in there. He's just running the shitty fucking bar. And then, like, later in the movie, when Henry Silva, like, shows up to, like, basically have his showdown with Seagal, this guy gets out of the car, the sedan, with, like, all these other CIA guys. And he's just like, remember me, asshole? I told you you'd never be the fucking man. And I'm like, what the hell is this guy doing? The bartender's here, you know? And I almost wonder if they just, like, they wanted to keep him in the movie. And then they're like, well, shit, how do we connect him? Just call him a CIA bartender. Yeah. Like no one in that bar looks fucking CIA. Like what what kind of deep cover is he in if he's running a package goods store in Wicker Park across from the Walgreens? Hey, maybe <laughs> you know? he's yeah, maybe they got, you know, well, cause right, that's where like uh Seagal goes upstairs and like quote unquote rescues his cousin who's just like loving doing lots of cocaine. Oh yeah. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe it maybe the bar is some sort of CIA uh, you know, Contras like drug front situation. <laughs> anyway, I do wanna yeah, I wanna talk a little bit more about it as a Chicago movie because I want to well I wanna I wanna quote my pal Ignati Vishnevetsky, who this is not about the movie, but this is about, in my mind, why this movie uh really does it for me in a lot of ways. But a few years ago, he wrote a, a piece on AV Club called America's Gangland, How Chicago Became a Cultural Capital. 
blah, blah, blah. And it's like just the history of Chicago and violence and art. It's really good shit. And he writes, really, there are many Chicagos bound almost physically. It is better maybe to try to grasp it in terms of its architecture, which is really one of the most beautiful things about it and planning. For instance, Chicago is the alley capital of the world. There are about 1,900 miles of alleyways running through almost every block of the city, regulated to a minimum width of 16 feet, some much wider. The alley is part of day-to-day -day life in Chicago. It's where we take our shortcuts and bring our trash. It's why Chicago doesn't smell as bad as other big cities. It lacks that note of garbage that gives New York streets their character. The kind of buildings we call two or three flats, whether brick frame or Indiana limestone called graystone locally will often have a gangway, a passage that lets you cut from the sidewalk to the alley. And most of the apartments in those two and three flats will have two doors one in the front and one in the rear. It's a city of back streets and back doors. I was thinking, like, I remembered this piece that he, you know, watching Above the Law because, like, half of the movie is in alleys and it's people going out back doors. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's like, it just, it just gets me. Yeah, no, I think when you talk about Chicago as like a, a location, yeah, it's it's it is a city in so many Chicago movies where things are taking place in the passageways, right? Compared to again, like the fugitive, where you know, some of the big climactic showdowns are in these like really big public kind of spaces, the the parade down State Street and stuff like that. But you look at movies like this, you look at movies like Thief. And it's just like so many scenes are just people waiting in alleys, just sitting in cars, waiting in alleys, you know, moving through those alleyways. He's just so committed to not shooting in the loop in Above the Law. It, it felt like a very conscious choice throughout the whole film. I mean, I felt like there were opportunities, right? There's but, like the one sequence with the, the parking garage. You right. Know? That's really it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, he's sort of sticking, uh, sticking outside the loop. I mean, he did shoot. Uh, you know, a lot of the loop and code of silence. So I'm sure yeah. for him as a Chicagoan, he's just like, yeah. well, I can't do that again, right? But this film does have the classic Fulton meat market scene mm -hmm. uh, where the, fe you know, Nico and, and his pals are gonna, yeah, whatever, bust this deal for C4 and then the feds ruin it, right? It's like yeah. the word gets out and the feds ruin it and next thing you know, everyone is just like blowing each other away in the meat market. Think about it from the perspective of Chicagoan too, right? Like I will say most Chicagoans know when you drive around the city that like you know alleys are are sort of like secondary streets oh, right yeah. you know you you can just cruise across the city through an alley like the whole way you know and you learn those little thoroughfares like again I think it's Kyle a sign doesn't of, like when I do that oh but it's I mean it's 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 the Chicago shuffle you go down an alley because you're just like you just go down the alley you know or like Meet me in the alley. Park your car in the alley, right? Like, you don't get that in New York City. You don't have that luxury of being able to just, like, chill in an alley, like, wait in an alley, like, park your car there, double park it, whatever, right? Roll it's, up on Nico with machetes and baseball bats absolutely. in a nice alley. Dude, I mean, just, like, hanging with friends. Like, you, will, somebody's got, like, a little alleyway. You'll go in there and you'll, like, kick a soccer ball around. You'll throw a baseball back and forth. You'll have beers. Well, four square? Yeah, whatever, you know? It's, like, it's this. it's this kind of, like, secondary street that you have in Chicago where like the real shit goes down. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, again, this is like a lot of the movies like Seagal running on roofs and just like, you see all the good brick, you get all the good vibes. And by the way, like, tell me like he is the, 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 the most hilarious 
runner you've ever seen. Yeah, he's, he's all, got he's like really, crazy bones. Yeah. He's really like straight up and very, he's so, so gangly in this yeah. movie, especially, right? He, he's uh, pumping his arms a lot, but they're right by his side. Yeah, you it's know? a very mm-hmm. awkward run. Yeah. It, but at the same time, it's sort, it's sort of terrifying. Like if a guy was sprinting at you like that with his arms that way with that kind of form, yeah, and he's like six four, it's like oh shit, like this guy's gonna fucking yeah, break run, my arm, yeah. you know? Like it's terrifying. Yeah, you know, I was wondering when he does like trash that that store, like that convenience store with all those guys when they like get the jump on him, and then he trashes it. This is just like a my own ignorance as to how these things work. But I was wondering like. I was I was just sympathizing with that poor shop owner. I was oh, like, absolutely. oh my god, can you imagine Seagal coming in and just fucking trashing your place? Seemingly like deliberately smashing the place up. Totally, yeah, like using his space and his goods as a way of like subduing these men. And I was wondering if something like that were to happen, uh, does the city like are they supposed to reimburse that shopkeep for a part of that? How does that work? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, like I'm assuming Nico like, was suspended at the time, that's so also I think what I he would wondering. have to sue him. That's, he would have to know. sue Nico. That's, that's right after he shot the guy in the street, yeah. and then and then he just fucking takes off. There's just like five machine guns sitting in the middle of the street yeah. next to a dead body, dude. It's like a classic. <laughs> it's it's sort of like a gag that. You You've seen in other, like, I think in, like, naked gun movies, you have five guys with automatic weapons just spraying his car. And then, like, there's a pause and he jumps up with a pistol. Like, From one, one else, nine yeah. millimeter pistol. And he's like, put your guns on the ground. And they're all like, oh, shit. And they put all their machine guns <laughs> yeah. down. And they just lay him down on the street. And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> and then that one guy is, like, mouths off to him. And he just shoots him in the chest, right. you know, in front of everyone. So not only is he on suspension going above the law, oh, yeah. right? But he then just shoots an unarmed assailant who had put down his weapon, right? I mean, I guess that is very Chicago PD now that I yeah. think about it. Yeah, know? well, Maybe I mean, I, <laughs> I think the that's, realism, like, you know, obviously, like, part of the absurdity of this film, uh, and especially in retrospect, right, is obviously, like, yeah, you know, this character uh, is, is against CIA torture. And, you know, like, right, he's, he makes great points uh, when he's like, you know, People I know, they've killed one, two, three, four people, but we're talking about 50,000 or whatever, right? Uh, But, like, ultimately... Which sounds like you rounded down on that, too, big time. Yeah, big time. And and even then, it's sort of like, okay, so this guy's a Chicago cop, like, you know, in real life at the time of, like, John Burge and, like, the torture crews and, like, that's actually going on in Chicago police. Like, this guy's like, oh, yeah, the Chicago cops are fine, but, like, I really draw the line at, like, CIA federal government torture and i think this film yeah ultimately you know winds up in like several incoherent places because again like as rosenbaum says cia angle gives it a little tang and it does but ultimately it it just ends up in this insanely muddled place where it's just like Seagal moral relativism. He's just like, oh yeah, whatever I do is fine. Like shooting these guys, I'm cutting these guys. Like I'm above the law, but like you can't be above the law. And then it ends with like a shot of the Capitol building. And he's just like, if people are above the law, like what kind of country is that? Right. Yeah, and like, yeah, yeah. I agree, mm-hmm. but like, yeah, it doesn't really uh, make sense. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's the, yeah, it's like, if you sniff out the, the corruption here, like, you won. You saved the day. Once you, because that's what we do. We stamp out corruption, ignoring the fact that there's nothing but corruption everywhere around you, especially in law enforcement. Again, I, I give Andrew Davis like some credit for at least, you know, at a time in the 
this is still more or less like we're 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 barely even done with Reagan's America here, right? This Absolutely, is eighty eight. It's yeah. like to 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 have that kind of public kind of stance of like even hinting at the CIA's connection to Nicaragua. Yeah, drug being deals. actively covered up at the time the film is being made, you know, like, uh, and forever. Yeah, <laughs> and absolutely. And forever. Again, yeah, that's, that's, not, that's not nothing. You know, there's right? something there. For yeah. a Warner Brothers film, for Christ's sake, you yeah. know? Yeah. I mean, I give them the benefit, the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, it is, right? Like you said, it's that sort of moral relativism there. You know, and, and again, like Steven Seagal, like, this guy also was pushing in a lot of his movies environmental issues like way before it was you know chic to do that in hollywood you know like he had a lot of uh that was like in his movies he had the, the mid 90s that run of movies in the mid 90s where like you know he, he was trying to address in a similar way uh you know the 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 fucking death of our planet by you know corporate greed and stuff like that there's that like 10 minute epic monologue at the end of uh on deadly ground and then fire down below we've joked about this like he plays a an epa an environmental protection agency agent and it's like but it's like a cop movie and he's like epa up against the wall you know it's like it's just so funny but at the same time like the dude was like an environmental activist like way before it was popular for stars to you know like leonardo dicaprio to 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 take that mantle on so when are when are they when are the celebs gonna save our planet <laughs> hey seagal tried and it didn't work you no. know i do want to say one more thing about seagal in the stolen valor yeah. thing you know um which is again you know you think of that amorphous identity like in his building of his legend there's just something that's really stuck in my mind and maybe that's just because i've been re-watching a lot of these movies and watching them in somewhat like sequence a big thing about his character in like all those early movies particularly like i think up until like the mid 90s is uh, it was always pointed out that his character was a Vietnam vet. In this movie, you have the prologue where it's very, you know, clear, like he's in Vietnam. But even in his other movies where he's just playing a cop, it's explicitly made clear that he's a Vietnam vet. And I was really thinking about that from the perspective of like stars and their personas and particularly like John Wayne. You know, I was thinking about John Wayne. John Wayne didn't serve in yeah, World War II. Famously. Famously. And you know, Pappy, a lot of, yeah, Pappy gave him hell. Yeah, created one. a lot of, of, of tension with John Ford, right? But as a way of compensating for that, you know, John Wayne was like this in a lot of war movies and, you know, very supportive of the military. And, you know, it was sort of like this, this thing inside John Wayne, this like shame to like overcome that. It was like, you know, he became the soldier, right? He became this like World War II icon. And, and in my view, it's like the same thing with Seagal. He did fucking serve in Vietnam. You know, he was, a, he was a teenager, right? He was like 15, 16 when Vietnam was going on. But there's this thing, right, of a certain generation of actor, right? It's like when the big war was there. It's like if you didn't serve, you didn't have the, the chops. You didn't have the, you know, especially with the World War II shit, right? Yeah, you're Ronald Reagan, you know, at the Signal Corps making short films. Right, you right, know? you know, Sitting like, it out. Yeah, you know, you got guys like Lee Marvin, you know, who could just, like, on set, if there was a malfunctioning weapon, just field strip it blindfolded while smoking a cigarette. But, like, Seagal didn't serve in Vietnam. So it's like this very clear thing in the 80s and 90s, like so many action heroes. It's like, oh man, you had to have that element of like, you were in Nam, man, because he gave you legitimacy. 
And it's just another aspect to me of like his like this like amorphous identity that he's always just trying to like latch on to other people's glory and other people's, you know, uh, experiences. He's a true chameleon. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. And and w- whether it's a, it's the good kind or the bad kind, I think that's up for each person. It's <laughs> the bad kind. Yeah. Yeah. Chameleon. I think it's the bad kind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's certainly the fun kind. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, let's put the hunter uh, in our targets here. Let's put the hunter through the gauntlet. Ryan, why don't you why don't you kick us off here? Sure. I guess as a transition point, one thing I wanted to ask both of you about both of those films uh, is the role of the both leads are fathers in the films, and I was wondering, you know. Based off what the films give us, who you think will be the better dad, you know? Because, like, McQueen comes around by the end of The Hunter. That's, like, a thing he's dealing with throughout. Well, well, but he's he, clearly dying, he, though. He does, he does also have that moment, you know, where he's, like, he's just, like, sucking down Jack Daniels, and he's like, I told you to abort that thing. Right. (laughs) It's pretty dark. And he's got those commitment issues. You know, he won't get married to her. He remains, like, she's just his girlfriend, you know? Um, Although he does say that that's her, right? That she's not the Marian kind. That's what he says. Oh, he says he says she's divorced and that she doesn't want to get remarried. So he claims. So he claims it's a pretty, you know, it's pretty comfortable for him. I think, you know, I think he'd rather live that way, right? But he does seem to come around a little bit at the end. Sure, I mean he's supposed to, you know. But I personally, I don't really buy it. This guy, no. he's got issues with the whole situation. Look, if you're asking me who I'd rather have as my daddy, I mean Steve McQueen. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. Sure, you know? of course. I yeah. mean, I would take Papa anyway because I feel like there's a lot of stuff in the Hunter, like we sort of talked about earlier, where it's like, yeah, this feels like a, a TV pilot for a show that was never made. I know this is based on the real life character. He hosted, you know, like all these uh, criminals who would get out of jail and his house was sort of like a halfway house. And so in the film, right, when you're introduced to like Papa, after he does his jobs, he comes home to his like weird L.A. house full of American like kitsch. And then there's like all these these ex-cons. LeVar Burton fixing his TV throughout the whole movie. Yeah, I I looked into that and it said that over a hundred different people had lived in Papa's house uh, between 1969 and 76. You know, so he's got this, like, he's got a, a heart yeah. You know, Nico, we're not really sure. Well, see, yeah, like, I, I guess I feel like with, with, I mean, if you're thinking of them as characters, I've, yeah, I feel like Papa Thornton would like, he'd, as I grew up, like he'd take me into the garage and he'd teach me how, like how a combustion engine works, 100%. you know, and like we'd, we'd rebuild a VW Beetle together. Whereas, you know, I feel like Nico would make me like, we'd, we'd be hitting the gym and he'd be like flipping me and stuff like that and trying to teach me how to be tough. And I just get the shit beat out of me by my dad all the time, you know? Yeah. Papa would be like, son, do you want to build a model plane? Yeah. 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 He's clearly hoping for a boy with all those toys that he's like buying and then like giving to his wife or his girlfriend as a gift. Um, But I think deep down, you know, he wants like a little man to play with his antique toys with and like give him a rundown. For sure. He's an old school guy. Yeah. And that's made clear. Nico right. would play catch with you and like he'd he'd throw the ball as hard as he possibly yeah, could. Yeah, knock you in the head you know? and fall over. Absolutely. You know? He'd be just yeah. like winging him in there, you know. There's actually a really nice story. I found this interview with Steve McQueen's last wife. Um, and she talked about just like a being on the set of The Hunter and like how Steve was. And there's a story 
he Steve McQueen saw like a bunch of kids like in Chicago playing ball and just like tossing around uh like a football stuffed with rags so then he he took the st- he asked the stuntman to go to a sporting goods store and just like buy everything they had and then the kids came back and there was just like a pile of gear in the yard that they would play at so you know like yeah there's there's heart there you know yeah look i Certainly. mean we we were we compared a little bit earlier like briefly the the two steves here you yeah. know and again i i think there's no question in like the legacy of your stardom and being an icon of the screen that like i mean steve mcqueen is is the fucking king of cool you know he had this sort of effortless kind of approach you know and he did tons of his own stunt work and you know but he also did it in a very like kind of it wasn't a flashy kind of way you know it was this more i don't know it well, was, sort it was of earthy like, yeah yeah well he's you know he comes out of that sort of like actor's studio era although i think he was like meisner but whatever like he comes out of that era where like leading men were kind of like sensitive and tortured and he was always like less sensitive and tortured than, you know, Brando or whoever else, right? But he's like cool as fuck, chill, macho, but, you know, there is a chink in his armor. And yeah, so it's interesting to see, yeah, you know, just him again sort of taking the piss out of that because the whole film is yeah, this sort of like TV comic kind of tone where he's parking bad and he's too old for this shit. I mean, the whole film is very cleverly, you know, about, you know, being an anachronism, right? It opens with a title card that's like, bounty hunters existed in the 1800s. Yeah, or whatever, yeah. Right? yeah like, I was going to say. He's carrying a- around uh, like that, like <laughs> that, that law card, you know, and it's yeah. like, here's the law. It's from 1872, you know, and the card looks like it's from 1872. Right. So, you know, way, I mean, I feel like, and he has to know that that's like foolish because in a sense, they're almost both above the law. In a way, and they just have like a different approach to it. And just Steve's is much chiller. Yeah, well, he, yeah, he's well. very clear, right? He's sort of like, yeah, well, it's a gray area, you know? So, yeah, he's a bounty hunter. And the film really just like takes the like the plot takes shape. Uh, there really isn't one, right? It's like he just get, keeps getting jobs while his wife, uh, played by Catherine Harold, is pregnant. And uh, the whole like the main conflict of the film is that Dottie, played by Catherine Harold, wants Papa to go to Lamaze class because she wants a natural birth. So, like, right. it's, the, 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 the structure of the film is, like, a, a scene about Lamaze, uh, and then it's like, ah, oh, he's in Nebraska, like, trying to catch these crazy rednecks, and it's like, he's back home. He's like, doesn't want to go to the Lamaze class, but damn, like here's Eli Wallach being like, you gotta go to Chicago, Papa. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then he's back and it's like, (laughs) Oh my God, his wife's going to give birth. Right. So yeah, the whole thing is, you know, it's about him getting old. It's about him being afraid of of being a father and all that. I love the scene when he goes to the Lamaze class and he like, won't fully (laughs) enter the room. He like, he steps in and then starts to really stiffen up as he's like looking at everyone, like rolling around on the floor. And then he starts pulling, like, I've got the bad back complaint. And then he, like, really exaggeratedly, like, gets down on his knees to assist his wife. Yes, that was pretty suspicious behavior, you know, from from Papa there. It's a little too resistant. You know, on a certain level, though, with what you both just said, like, it it, it is, I guess, another kind of um, interesting parallel between the two films that they both strike me. And The Hunter in particular, like you said, Marsh, like, they're... It's really more a movie that's just full of subplots than it is some big central kind of conflict, you know? And in a sense, like, people have said with Above the Law, it's this kind of, like, 
there's just so much stuffed into it. There's a lot of like subplots that that kind of they try to kind of connect, you know, but that's to me like the hunter. Like when I was watching it, I, I just kept wondering like, all right, like what's the what's going to be the thing here, you know? And, you know, even like the whole Chicago thing, I, I texted you and I was like, I'm an hour in. When do they go to Chicago? Yeah. Like, what's going on here? You know, like I thought that's what this movie was. It was like a big Chicago thing, you know, and it's like even when he goes to Chicago, like that's not that's just another job. Yeah, that's it's just, just like, an action set it's just piece. A, it's just a set piece. It is like yeah. 12 minutes long, but it is literally just a chase. Right? It's yeah. a chase. It's and, a single chase. And then, you know, it, it kind of comes to a conclusion with this other subplot that had been dangling through oh. the whole thing of this like stalker, this guy that, you know, wants revenge on him, you know? And, like, and he puts like a little marker on his face. Like he looks like, yeah, a, yeah, really yeah that, that actor, what's his name? Tracy again? Walter. Right. Tracy Walter, another LA weirdo, like a legendary LA weirdo. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, yeah, but it's like, that's not even the, the main plot element. No, like- <laughs> I, you forget about it until he comes back at the end. There's so little attention drawn to that. I mean, the whole film is so slippery. Yeah, like, you know? I kept thinking, uh, when is LeVar Burton gonna do something, right? So, like, <laughs> that's the opening scene, you know, Papa can't park, uh, and then he catches this kid who jumped bail in L.A., and then he brings LeVar Burton home, and he's just, like, living there and fixing the TV in every scene. And again, it's like, in episode two, uh, Tommy's gonna learn the ropes from Papa or something, right. but like there is no episode two. Just like it introduces Ben Johnson as a Texas sheriff, and he's like, "Oh yeah, don't don't arrest my nephew or whatever." And then like Papa does it anyway, and Ben Johnson's like, "Okay, yeah, uh, no see, consequences. See you later." Yeah. And then he just exits the film, and there's like a lot of stuff like that throughout it where. What is going on? It is like it almost feels like it was designed in a way with commercial breaks in mind where you can forget about these people as they exit. But you could see how it would be a television show, right? It's like every episode, Papa's got a job and then he's got to like, he starts at home and ends at home. And in the middle, there's a big set piece where he flies to the Kankakee airport and pretends it's Nebraska. Yeah. uh, And then drives a thresher like through a bunch of corn or whatever. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which is a pretty sick sequence. It's incredible. Like those hillbillies are just like throwing dynamite at him. That's actually pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah, I was really impressed by that. And then he returns the blown up car to the rental lady. Oh, yeah. Good gag. It, It makes sense, though. If you think about like the genesis of this, right, because it was based off of, you know, like both, a, I think, a book and just this guy, like his stories. Yeah. Yeah, so there's the way a I see it, it's like he's probably sitting there just being like, I'll tell you, oh, this one time, you know, yeah, he's got he all these yarns, yeah. right? He's got all these yarns that they're spinning and they're like, wow, these would make this would make a great move. Your stories. Right. But it's like he's just sort of stringing all these stories together of things that have happened to him and then like all right well let's thread this into a feature-length film you know or the feature-length film which could get you the television show which was like a thing back then right you'd have a lot of like movies which would then become television shows i mean well this one did there was a subsequent television show about his wife called the huntress no way yep because she ended up also being a bounty hunter like later after he had died. All right. So, you know, like we talked earlier about like how Seagal shaped above the law and his subsequent films, right? There is, you know, I know there are people online who, you know, believe in a Seagal auteurism, right? Because of his heavy hand. And McQueen, of course, also had a famously 
maybe not heavy hand, but right, like the vehicle thing, you know, let me ride the, the motorcycle, let me drive the car, because that was his real life passion, right? And this film, of course, is like, a you know, every time he's operating a vehicle, it's kind of like a gag. So like, he's got the, uh, he drives like a tow truck, uh, a Trans Am that he like can't handle because it's like too fast. And then he gets it blown up, right? Uh, he drives a Thresher. Uh, he drives around L.A. in like a banana yellow 51 Chevy because he's just like this anachronism, this guy. Yeah, like, he's always grinding the gears on it. You can yeah. just constantly hear him, you know. But you know that's like all of that's his idea. Like you can tell. Totally. Like every single one of those sort of like vehicle things was like him being like, oh, this would be funny. Like I'll get on the thresher. Yeah, Yeah, like there's no way that in real life uh, Papa was like this horrible driver that like couldn't No, ride, it's you know, totally like a Meta That's like McQueen a gag, joke. yeah. Yeah. I mean, it did say, like, you know, and just, like, the stuff I read about the movie, like, even the LeVar Burton thing I read, it just said, uh, Steve McQueen really liked LeVar Burton and thought he should, like, be in more stuff, so he just, like, put him in the movie. Like, it probably wasn't even in the script. McQueen was like, LeVar is in it now. And everyone was like, well, McQueen, sure, whatever, you know? Yeah, because that whole sequence even is, like, a subplot of a subplot. Like, because yeah. he's going to pick up, you know, Ben Johnson's nephew. Right. And along the way, he also scoops this guy up with no incident really whatsoever. And then he's just in the car hanging with him while he then goes and picks up the other guy. So, yeah, it's like it's a subplot of a subplot within a movie of like nothing but subplots. Right. You know? yeah, I mean, he just turns into a TV character once he like joins the house. Yeah. You know, because it really does. It feels like a sitcom when yeah. it's when it's at the it's like house. Papa, like yeah, it's a gag. It's like Papa home and then all the poker players are just sitting around being like sure hey papa come on in plenty of room and hey, we need another sucker Toddy wouldn't like it <laughs> come on papa one hand huh sit on and play huh? better not better not five guns that fellas you can tell that's what's always happening. Uh, and he wants to just go in the back room and like play with his toys. His <laughs> totally. Toys. Yeah, I love you the know. scene when he's in his robe and he's got his glasses on and he's like tinkering with the toys. Yeah. And those were McQueen's toys. Those were all furnished by him. That was really? all stuff he owned. So again, there's like another... So the antique thing is not a papa thing no it's, it's a mcqueen a, thing so crazy. all the yeah. car stuff all the toy stuff like that stuff was mcqueen ideas. just like oh i have all this cool shit yeah you know, let's put it in there yeah it's a mix and match you know it's like the film is about yeah the real papa thorson and about steve mcqueen it took me a long time to appreciate mcqueen because i you know for many years when i was a teenager it was like what's this guy's deal I, like, didn't understand what his deal was. And now I can see it. I can, like, differentiate, like, you know, because he is, like, a kind of a subtle actor for the most part, right? It's, like, a lot of interiority. And, yeah, just I remember younger being like, why Why do people like this guy? Like, he seems boring. But, no, he's, like, moody, you know? It's, like, a very different thing. Yeah, absolutely. You know? I mean, I, I lived with a guy like that. You know? I had a roommate <laughs> like that. I From one day to the next, I didn't know this if he liked me. happened to my buddy, he, Eric. If yeah. he hated me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And then, you know, he'd come over and then suddenly sit down next to you and, and, and open up to you. And you'd realize, wow, he... 
he really did like me all along. That's his way of showing it. You yeah. Know? <laughs> and I think that's I think that's very much the case with Steve, Steve McQueen. You know, he doesn't wear his emotions on his sleeve like a, a lot of other actors. Like comparing it to like Seagal. Like Seagal is constantly fidgeting and he's he's hugging people. He's putting these big outward sort of displays of affection in a lot of his movies, you know. He's this big personality. He wants to be the center of attention. He wants to be the coolest guy in the room. And there's a lot of effort made by him to that end, you know? But yeah, I think with McQueen, it's very, it's very different. He's, like you said, you know, it, it's so much more he internalizes. My dad once told me this story about Steve McQueen in one of his first big breakout roles in uh, The Magnificent Seven, where, you know, McQueen... So much of his his performance and, and that cool quality was, like you said, not in what he said, you know, that sort of externalizing, right? But so much more of just the way he moved, the way he would, you know, pick up an item or, you know, play with something. And my dad tells a story about how, you know, there's this scene in The Magnificent Seven where... You know, it's one the, the big opening scene where they, Steve McQueen and Yul Brenner are going to ride the the hearse up to the hill. And, you know, Yul Brenner, another big, you know, notorious self-centered sort of star persona, he felt that he was the star of the movie. And here's M Steve McQueen, this sort of like up and coming star that he could feel on his on his heels. And the scene is Brenner's, right? And he's supposed to be the center of attention. But my dad told me that Steve McQueen, like his whole his whole mindset was he wanted people to look at him. Like he wanted to be the focal point. And it's an ensemble film with lots of like group shots, but that McQueen very consciously would do things in the middle of shots right next to Yul Brenner so that you would look at him. Like you had to look at him and like really subtle things. Like they're sitting on the hearse. Yul Brenner's got the reins and it's supposed to be, the focus supposed to be on Yul Brenner. And McQueen just takes out his like shotgun shells and he's just kind of like shaking them next to his head. Like, is there buckshot in there? Yeah. Oh, these are good. You know? And it's a subtle thing, but it's like you do, your eyes are drawn to him. You're like, wow, look at, he's so fucking cool, man. And like Brenner's just sitting there fuming, you know, like, what is he doing? Just it's shaking so those shotgun funny when shells. you, like, when you tell a story uh, that your father told you that my father has also told me and i wonder like has he my, told you that same he has. Like, story? my dad has told me because my dad loves a magnificent seven and he like <laughs> it, it, it almost it's feels well like known tale. it's like dad gossip right yeah yeah, yeah. Lord. i like literally have my father has told me it's just like oh yeah you know mcqueen he was being a little sneaky he would do stuff and it was always like he was distracting <laughs> everyone dad i've literally gossip. heard this before <laughs> yeah dad um, that is dad gossip you know like can you believe steve mcqueen upstaged joel brenner like that this is <laughs> yeah. And in like related, I mean, speaking about dads, right? When I had first pitched the, this film for the group, you know, you had said like, oh yeah, my dad told me that a guy died in one of the stunts in the film. And then we found out that that wasn't Not true. true. Yeah. Right. Dad, dad lore, dad legends, dad gossip. Yeah. yeah. So you take it all with a grain of salt. Totally. You know? But yeah, growing up, that's what my dad had always told me about The Hunter was like anytime, because again, like, look, in my opinion of like The Hunter, like I remember when I was watching it, you know, I was sort of like, what the fuck? Like, I, I texted you, when the hell are they going to Chicago? You know, like, you know, I, I didn't necessarily consider it, see it as like a Chicago movie. Not you at know? all. But like, there are, in that sequence in Chicago, like, they, they like, they ring the bell. They hit these like iconic Chicago locations, the L chase scene, but those marina towers, you know? And for Chicago architecture, when you think of this city and you think of its architecture, the marina towers, those 
weird cylindrical buildings in there. Like that is such a Chicago like architectural icon, you know, a unique aspect of our of our city. My dad had always told me growing up, anytime we'd drive by those, he'd go, you know, there was a movie with Steve McQueen and a stuntman <laughs> drove up there. And as they got to the end, he was supposed to jump out, but he didn't. He didn't get out of the car and he went right into the river and he died. <laughs> and like, then you That's just like amazing. read about it. And it's like, yeah, there was right. a mannequin in it, you know? Yeah, like, print the legend, you know? <laughs> yeah, print the legend. Absolutely. Yeah. There was even like a fairly recent, like Michael Phillips, like revisiting the Marina Tower, the Hunter thing. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, because obviously, like, we weren't alive when that happened. I think I read that. I think I read that because it was Michael Phillips. That's when I debunked my dad's, like, thing was that Michael Phillips thing. But it's like such a Michael Phillips thing to do, though. Just suck the fun right out (laughs) of it. It was a dummy. Yeah. No one died. It It was a pretty standard son. Yeah. Like, thanks, buddy. Like, But, yeah, it does seem like it was, like, a pretty iconic moment for, like, a certain generation of Chicagoans. Like, people knew about it. I saw that they there's an all-state insurance commercial. Where they replicate the stunt from the hunter, clearly targeting the you know that generation of people that were familiar with that stunt at the very least. Yeah, and you know my dad would tell me. Uh, my dad grew up in, in Chicago from the South Side, and like throughout my life, my dad has told me many stories of like various points when they would film things in Chicago, and like people being at these places and seeing some of these like you know iconic Chicago movie moments take place, and like I know. Uh, he told me that Marina Tower thing. I mean, just people were like lining up to like watch it, you know. My dad, his other claim to fame of like a thing he saw Chicago movie, uh, Chicago movie moment. He said that he was in uh, Chicago during the Blues Brothers sequence where they're like running into the Daily Building. There's that where they're running across by the Picasso yeah. and all that stuff, you know. And my dad was like, he was there. Like he was just in the crowd. Like he's like, oh yeah, we all heard that they were filming it and and we watched it, you know, and we were standing there and saw the whole thing go down, saw him run across the thing, blah, 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 all this stuff. It's also funny, again, like when these things kind of get filtered and then you hear it like 10 different yeah. times uh-huh. and you kind of go like, oh, what, what, really, were you there? You know, it's like they- this Yeah, all these weird details are happening. Because my parents yeah, claimed yeah. that they saw the stunt in the Blues Brothers on the highway when the car like crashes into the truck. They say like they were there, they like were on the highway and they saw it happen. Wow, yeah. we got two We got two parents claiming Blues Brothers valor yeah. on the podcast. Right, but again, you know, you're, you know, if you're talking about like Chicago movies, like let's be honest, you know, when people often hear Chicago movies and they think Chicago movies like the Blues Brothers is like one of those ones that's like always oh, at the top of so many people's yeah, lists. Yeah, that and Ferris Bueller, those are the two. Now, interesting you you bring up the Blues Brothers though because one of the things that uh, I learned about the Hunter, the Chicago stuff was shot in the fall of 1979, September 1979. And in that month, the Blues Brothers and My Bodyguard were being filmed. Wow. So like, it's actually really kind of interesting, I think, from a historical perspective, because obviously uh, Daly uh, Sr. Uh, was like, it didn't allow anyone to film. And then he died in the mid 70s. And this is like, you know, a Jane Byrne era film. She gets thanked uh, in the end. Yeah, yeah. Her yeah. and the governor get thanked for all the lovely Illinois locations. But yeah, it is it is a transitional time in Chicago cinema, because obviously there's like a lot of 80s films shot on location here. And to a certain extent, like a decent amount in the 90s. But Daly Jr. Uh, sort of clamped down uh, again on productions. And it wasn't, unfortunately, until much later. And 
speaking of, again, I guess another interesting connection there between these two films that I, I would have never thought to really connect. But the more I thought about it, the more I was like, wow, is that Above the Law was, you know, probably filmed in 88, I think. Uh, That's when it came late. out. So right. yeah, that or 87. Right. Which is the death of Harold Washington. And it's basically, this film, there. I looked yeah, it up. Eugene yeah. Sawyer. Eugene mm-hmm. Sawyer. And this movie comes out the year before Daly Jr. would then ascend to the yep. throne and clamp down on Chicago productions, you know? But that this was in that, like, yeah. that sweet spot. The golden right age. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, it's a short sequence, but they shoot the shit out of Chicago in it, right? I mean, we start, we've well, got Well, he pulls McQueen. up on Lakeshore yeah. Drive. That's like the opening, right? It's mm-hmm. just like him coming up on the ramp. And I was like, is he going to be on the Kennedy? Is he going to? And it's like, oh, no, of course. They're playing the hits, right? Yeah. And then, like, it's funny. I saw on the Wikipedia page, it lists that it was shot in Old Town. And that's that's False. obviously not the case. It's shot in Uptown. It's clear that he goes on the Sheridan Red Line stop. Well, that's like, it's like a mix. It's like a classic Hollywood production. They're filming Brown Line, Red Line, yeah. Purple Line, North and South during the chase sequence. They're going mm-hmm. all directions. Because there's even, like, helicopters shots right there's one that's definitely like a brown line west side and then they're back on the yeah. red line mm-hmm. like. yeah they change the directions if you like know the city because it even it it even goes for the the a bit of a subway sequence right. as well yeah that's like a really impressive moment uh in the sequence too because we're you know we're talking about all these different chicago chase sequences that utilize the l um but none of them go underground and i think that like it is like intense that transition when he has to like hang off of the edge because he can't quite gauge like how much clearance he has it's an interesting yeah it's an interesting moment having the train kind of going and I, even him hanging off the edge of the of the train like looks really good i mean obviously a double of course but like just the way they do it i mean it really looked like that guy was hanging off of the hanging off of the l oh yeah i really like the the l scene because yeah before mcqueen goes up top right there's sort of like a chaotic french connection style like you know the guy papa's chasing is just like nuts you know he's on drugs yeah, he's, uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh he he starts blowing people away yeah. in the train car and what i love is that there's like it's like 15 to 17 to Paris, but everyone gets owned. Like people, like a couple people like try going up to him and they get like shot or like oh, smacked yeah. away. Yeah. And I was like, man, if only we had like some members of the armed services on this train to come and do the job. Like, yeah, in, totally like in a Clint movie, you know, we'd clean this up real quick, but yeah. no. That the guy's got like full c- command of the L, oh, yeah. just like <laughs> it's funny that McQueen's impulse, like his character's impulse, then like when he sees that happening, is like I gotta bail because he that's his like way of diffusing. He's like I gotta like stop standing around so these people get shot. Like I gotta get on top of this thing, and it's also a little weird too when that guy is like firing into the ceiling of the L because McQueen is like following the trajectory of his bullets like he should be going in the oh, opposite direction. Oh, that's always yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. it's like he's clearly he's going one yeah, way. It's like, like, like just go it's, like that guy can't hear McQueen like climbing around on top of the train. Like, I know. He wouldn't be loud and enough for that. Again, you know, draw another par- parallel like the a very similar kind of thing happens in above the law he's on top of the 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 train and the guys start shooting the ceiling with him where he's on Mm -hmm. on top of the train you know but i think you marsh you brought up a really interesting kind of connection to 
the oh god i'm not gonna do this the french connection right (laughs) which is such a you know if you think of that l sequence in that it's considered by a lot of people myself included to be one of the greatest chase sequences in any movie obviously a new york movie right yeah but you see that influence in even in the hunter yes and also in above the law right a film very clearly right like popeye doyle's going above the law in that whole movie like he's just this man on a mission you see that influence in above the law you see it in the hunter Mm -hmm. with certainly like the chase sequence and and that kind of yeah the crowd getting blown away like Lots of parallels there. Friedkin's a Chicago guy, so it's, yeah. you know. <laughs> Absolutely. It's all connected, right? Yeah. Now, here's the question. Like, what Chicago movies did Friedkin make Great in his question. career? Uh, the People versus Paul Crump, which yep. is a documentary <laughs> he made about a guy on death row. And the film is shot by Bill Butler, who would go on to f- film Jaws. So it's like a documentary, but Friedkin's like doing expressionism because he's Friedkin and he's like literally thinks he's making... <laughs> his Citizen Kane. It's a really interesting film, but I don't, I don't know, uh, yeah, if he really ever. That's what I'm checking right know, now. Made any Chicago-related films? Well, kinda, Blue Chips has it. some scenes in Chicago. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ! But that's yeah. about it. But that's funny, right? Because you know, it's always been a thing. You know, like Friedkin, he's the Chicago guy. A few years ago. Marsh and I saw Friedkin speak, introducing Sorcerer. I was at the same screening, but we didn't know each other then. But, but, oh, wow. Well, yeah. interesting. He just kind so, of a beautiful origin yeah. story. Yeah. So yeah, right? You're, you're at the thing, and, and all he's doing is just holding court and just talking Chicago. Yes. He's just telling Chicago stories, and it's like, why the fuck didn't Friedkin make <laughs> Like, you know, this guy, he knows Chicago like the back of his hand. Yeah, he made more Boston movies than Chicago I movies. Mean, yeah, I mean, what the hell is that all about? You know, it's kind of crazy. On the flip side, you get Michael Mann, who will do whatever he can in his movies to reference Chicago or include Chicago, even if it's just a throwaway moment. Like, uh, you know, they had a DNA. layover. Yeah, like he he tries to put Chicago in so many of his movies, which is funny because... Again, when you think about Chicago movies, like you get something like Manhunter, where there's just like a brief segment where they're in Chicago. I think it's an interior, and man, like, flew the crew to Chicago to shoot an interior because, like, out the window is the Chicago skyline. Yeah. Uh, Because it's like a Farina Peterson, like, scene where they're, like, in a building. And it's like, yeah, he straight up, like, yeah, you know, cost the studio X, Y, Z because, like, he needed the Hancock uh, in the background Mm -hmm. or whatever for some reason. Yeah, it's just, like, (laughs) Peterson, like, looking out a window at, like, the skyline or something like that. There's something about those movies that often, like, I feel like is, like, oh, it's a Chicago movie, right? And there's only, like, one scene in Chicago. But, like, he somehow is able to, like, capture the essence and the beauty of this city, like so intensely in even five minutes, from from mm-hmm. somebody who clearly just like knows the city. You know, I actually yeah. thought the the night scenes in Above the Law had a very Michael Mann look to them, especially when he's like right? on that roof yeah. and there's all the lights because it's like him. shallow focus, yep. right? Nico's on the roof, like spying, I'm trying to spy on the CIA, and it's like a very you know because it's before like the light changeover, right? Before they switched the lights to the like orange sodium vapors. They still had like the cool blue green, which are, of course, this is also an Ignati's piece, but uh, those lights were called the, the electric crime fighter when oh, they were yeah. installed in the 50s. Because <laughs> uh, it was like all gas up until a certain point. And when Daly installed all the electric lights, 
yes, the brand, like the brand name was like the crime fighter because it's all about lighting up the city so you can, you know, arrest more people or whatever. Oh my Uh, God. But yeah, it's got the blue sheen, the blue green. Yeah, there's that, there's that, there's like a couple, like, these like insane like tilts down where he starts at this yeah. like from a very like high angle and he just kind of tilts this camera down and that's so much to me like that that sequence in Thief that starts with the alley right when yeah. you start down up the, fire the rain escape. and the street lights yeah and you pan down and it's just this big long stretch of of Chicago street Chicago night uh, it's it yeah it's it's really beautiful yeah there's not a lot of pretty images uh, or any pretty images in the hunter you know no it, it is very TV style and I don't mean that pejoratively it's like a guy who's directed a thousand episodes of television directing a movie like I do kind of like you know, some of the Illinois stuff like I like the like fishing cabin sequence like on the Kankakee River well I have um, a theory about this which is like the action scenes in this movie McQueen stole Peck and Pa's editor robert wolf who cut the getaway and pat garrett so like the action scenes to me have like this sort of like yeah like hard edge to them like there's good there's a totally uh, different aura to it totally it's like a different filmmaker shot those sequences i want to read the so dave kerr's chicago reader capsule i think captures this really well so he says steve mcqueen in his last film approaches middle age stealthily under the heavy cover of cuteness he plays a modern day bounty hunter who between jobs for bail bondsmen, collects old toys, hosts poker games for ex-cons, and avoids going to his girlfriend's Lamaze classes. The big joke is that he can't drive. The picture isn't bad, really. It's just a little too soft and eager to please, like the family films, circus pictures and such like, that John Wayne made in the 60s to soften his image. Every once in a while, director Buzz Kulik sheds the low-key sitcom style to toss off an action sequence, and these vignettes have a dissociated, arbitrary quality, as if they were on loan from an older, tougher McQueen film. (laughs) And I mean, there you go, right? Kerr captures it perfectly again, exactly what we're kind of like hitting at. It does, like they suddenly feel like it's a totally different movie and like a very proficient movie in a different way. Like, it's, like, very successful, silly TV, you know, for whatever that's worth during, like, any scene with everyone at the house, um, all the stuff with his wife, and even the chases sometimes in, uh, like, the Nebraska chase scene is, like, a bit silly. But at the same time, all those sequences are shot totally differently, they're cut totally differently. Yeah, it seemed like he had more of a hand in that. For sure. I mean, I, I personally think the movie, it feels like a mess to me. I mean, like... Yeah. Oh, it, it is a mess. Yeah, it's, totally. It's like there's 10 different plans for what this movie is and what it's supposed to be. And, and they sort of come together. But as a whole, I'm, I'm like, as I was watching it, I, I just constantly was kind of going like, what? Because there's also like some weirdly disarming moments. Like when he's just hanging out at the house and it's like the sitcom. And then all of a sudden his buddy, you know, kind of quietly just says like, oh, you think you got troubles, you know? And then that guy fucking kills himself later in the film, you know? It's like this sudden like shocking and sad moment. And because Steve McQueen's like washing the dishes or something. And he's just like, what? And then it like gets interrupted and it moves on. Yeah, it's constantly hopping around and it never knows what it is. In like the Tracy Walter subplot where he's like this psycho who's like trying to get revenge on McQueen, who when he sees him, McQueen's like, I didn't put you in jail. I'm just a bounty hunter. Um, anyway, he explains <laughs> yeah. that to him, but he doesn't care. And it's just like, it just does, doesn't make any sense. Like, that like i know he's like you know, crazy or whatever but he could have just like killed them whenever he wanted 
but he just like doesn't. Uh, it's just like stalling for the finale of the film. And yeah, he's got a fucking M16 with a night scope on it. I mean, he's got him like yeah. in his scope. And then, of course, yeah, in the climax, it all comes together. Papa comes home and finds out that Tracy Walters kidnapped his girlfriend who is pregnant and about to give birth. And then Papa saves the day and like explodes a school using the chemistry lab as his uh, sort of like fuel or whatever. I thought it was crazy that he took like every single hose off of those. Yeah, he went I was like, enough. Like you only need to do a couple of these. Like you're going to blow the whole fucking place down. Because I was wondering, I was like, oh, like would it like continue to like what gets cut off after the explosion Well, I mean, you know. It is a movie, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, but I was thinking, you know, like the same thing where I was like, oh, do the cops have to pay for this? Like, I was like, well, if this shit did happen, like, how would this work? You know, I was wondering insurance. about like, because the gas would just like keep flowing. And unless like there has to be some. Sort I love of, like, this side of you that's kind of like an actuary when you're watching these movies, you uh-huh. know, just trying to figure out who's liable yeah. for everything. That's <laughs> what we're going to do at the end of every episode is you're going to you're going to like uh, publish, a you know, the bill that. <laughs> these movies (laughs) you know if this was real life like they had you know x amount of money and property damage yeah Uh, yeah that's because that's what rosenbaum says in his above the law capsule he says filmed in chicago with the usual amount of property damage and Um, he's right look let's be honest you know like he should be in jail for what he did in that movie. <laughs> Which one? I mean, both of them, really. But. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really think uh, in Above the Law, he's more egregious in his, oh, yeah, in he's his like, crimes. Totally. Yeah, the, he goes out of, he's out of control. I mean, bounty that. hunters, like, it is legitimate. Like, bounty hunters do have these, like, weird sort of, like, immunities for what they're able to do. Same mm-hmm. thing with, like, Repo Men. I mean, that was the thing throughout Above the Law. I, I constantly was going back to, it was just like, he's doing most of this uh, on suspension, without warrants. I mean, like, the whole thing. I, I he's can't... got his whole bag of tapes, the, his cassette tapes that he's just, like, spying on people. Dude, yeah, he the whole the whole investigation begins with an illegal wiretap yeah. that Pam Greer is pointing out. Pam Greer's sitting there being like, I'm about to become a fucking assistant DA or whatever, and, like, this is, none of this flies. And he's like, I oh, don't worry about it. It'll all be fine. And you're like, what are you talking about? Like, the whole case is built on an illegal wiretap, you know? Like, that's how the whole thing began. And not just that, but he even found out about the guys to illegally wiretap by just storming into that bar and beating everybody up and kicking the shit out of that guy that was doing drugs with his niece or whatever. So yeah. it's like, can you imagine trying to explain that? Well, how'd you get your probable cause? Well, I went into this bar run by Wayne It's Newton. all self-defense. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess the only other thing uh, would be if uh, you feel it's, it's worth um, asking about you know, we we selected two Chicago films um, and, you know, these were things that we brought to the table. I think one we all agree is like this very clear, like, oh, man, Chicago movie, you know. Oh, it's, yeah. It's, from it's such a end, yeah. yeah <laughs> from, from like the first, you know, aside from the Cambodian sequence or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, this great Chicago movie. Then another movie that we looked at, which we all kind of were like, eh, is it really a Chicago movie? I mean, it's got a great sequence in it, you know. But I guess my other question then to you, because these are things that we picked, you know, is there a Chicago movie that comes to your mind? Like when you hear that, like uh, to define like what a a Chicago movie Mm. is. Good question. I mean, yeah, there's a 
you know, there's a canon, right? Uh, at least a, a personal canon. Uh, obviously, things like Medium Cool and uh, Mickey One, like the 60s stuff. What else? Uh, I honestly, like, lately I feel like I think most of Cooley High. Oh, yeah. Um, Absolutely. Just because I felt like it was an angle that I hadn't seen from Chicago cinema from, like, a certain era. And it's, like, cool because it's, like, set in the... It's, like, it came out in the 70s, but it's yeah. set in the... 50s? It's been a little yeah, while. Yeah, or like early 60s. Yeah, yeah, so it like uses the city in like a pretty fun way. A lot of good um, Al in that movie as well. Yeah. yeah. Obviously Thief, one of my all-time favorite movies. You can't beat it. Interestingly enough, there is another Seagal film that's set in Chicago and the suburbs that's Marked for Death. But Marked for Death, unlike Above the Law... Like, the entire thing was shot in, like, Pasadena or some shit like that. And the premise in that is that Rastafarian drug dealers are taking over the town. So then it's, like, him fighting Rastafarian drug dealers. But the whole thing is so clearly Pasadena. Again, you see mountains, you see all this stuff that's, like... I mean, that's a dead giveaway. There's not a single mountain in Illinois, people. Get with it. The highest point is a mound. We've been over this. Yeah. If you see a movie that says it's shot in Chicago and you see anything that's like precariously above sea level uh it is not chicago shut it down all right well next week it is andy's turn to throw down the gauntlet and pick the topic so what do we uh what do we got going on yeah i uh my 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 choice for uh next week i'd like to see you both bring to the table movies about Revolution. Once upon a time, the revolution. I'm feeling very revolutionary at the moment. So bring it next week. Bring it to the table. Movies depicting or dealing with the revolution. And you can take that however you'd like. uh, Within reason. And we will. All right. Well, uh, you can uh, find us online at twitter.com slash gauntlet movies or feel free to insult or praise me uh, at marshlands you guys aren't on twitter probably a smart decision i have a twitter but i never fucking use it well it's better for your mental health Um, so i'll be i can be our representative but uh if you ever want to you know insult these guys or you know or say nice things uh, you can email us at gauntletmoviespodcast at gmail.com. Anywhere, uh, you know, you want our, our new fans to uh, reach out to you, you know, like on Letterboxd or anything. Yeah, we're all on Letterboxd. You can't you know. send direct messages, but I guess you could comment on our reviews. I'll That's try right. and post for, for these films. And where's that? I think it's just my name. <laughs> Ryan Saunders. Ryan Saunders. If you type me in, you have the original it. Ryan Saunders letterbox handle. I think so. <laughs> it's a picture of me like holding my cat in the desert. Okay. So that's how you recognize me. Right. And I think I'm on Letterboxd under Pistol, I think, which is also my Instagram uh, handle. But that's spelled P-I-S-S-T-O-L-L. Pistol, one word. All right. See ya later. Hey.